Well, our Bible reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but I hate what I do. And if I do what I do, not what to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know what good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ali and I'm the children's minister here at St. Columns. So I thought I'd ask you a question that you often get asked when you are younger. And that is, what did you want to be uh, when you grew up? What did you say? Maybe you wanted to be an Olympic athlete. I'm pretty sure I said Dorothy the dinosaur to start with. Um, and then that changed to being a vet. I think half influenced by Dr. Harry, because Dr. Harry's practice was my favourite show as a kid. And he had to be my idol. He was on Arne's Brush with Fame the other week, so that's why he came to mind. So... I wanted to be a vet, so I worked really, really hard to get there. Uh, I got the marks that I needed, but I also began to network, and I got lots of experience on farms and clinics, and I, I soaked up as much as I possibly could. Because that's what you do when you want to be successful, isn't it? Uh, you network, you study hard, you change jobs to further your career, you set goals, you work out how to achieve them, you receive feedback, and the cycle just keeps going. And these things, they're very useful. I mean, I would be really concerned if a medical practitioner wasn't engaged in this process to gain more skills and wisdom. But something we may not get asked as often is, are you the kind of person you wanted to be. 
I'm talking about character. Are you the kind of person you wanted to be all those years ago? Perhaps you've had moments where you've realised that who you are isn't who you want to be. In other words, you've been compromised. Something has gone wrong. And well, we see it on a big scale in the media. Successful big personalities, politicians, sports people, entertainers, falling hard because of dodgy decisions. And we look at them and we ask, how could you just throw all of that success away like that? But it happens to us too. I was reminded of when I was training to be a teacher and a mentor of mine told me that in a couple of years' time, I should ask myself this question. In what ways have you become the teacher you never wanted to be? And she explained that somehow, over time, we just start to do things, make decisions and act in ways that we hated or we we shunned or didn't like it when we saw it in other people. Slowly, without realising it, we have become compromised, tainted, hacked. We've become compromised. Who we are is not who we want to be. What's with that? How can we prevent it? Well, this is what Kerry Niehoff talks about in his book, I Didn't See It Coming. And at St. Collins, we've just started a series based on this book. It's the seven greatest challenges that everyone experiences but no one expects. Last week, we looked at cynicism. And this week, it's compromise. So in the talk today, I'm going to touch on two questions. Why and how do we become compromised? And what can we do to prevent it? Well... To answer that, I've sort of already alluded to it. We put so much time and energy and effort into being competent, skillful people. It's why I did what I did when I wanted to be a vet. And then let's look at our education system. It's all built on getting young people skilled enough to live successfully. We put our children in lots of different extracurricular activities like music, sport, dance and drama. And we do this because, well, we largely believe that competency or skills will give them the best chance at living a happy and fulfilling, successful life. Now, for those visual people out here, the equation looks a little like this. Competency equals capacity for life. And yes... Skill acquisition, as I said, is useful and good, but it's not the whole picture. Ultimately, what will determine our capacity for life is our character. Character is actually the bigger factor. Let's think about it. You could be an absolute genius, but if you were a jerk your opportunities are going to dry up pretty quickly. You might have all of the qualifications in the world, but then your family life ends up being a mess because you're not patient. Then 
at the end of our lives, people reflect very briefly on the things that you did, but eventually, mainly when people talk about you, they sum us up in one sentence, and it's always to do with our character. Oh, Alison, yes, yes, she was very creative. A challenging question we can ask ourselves is, how would, summa- how would someone summarise you in one sentence? So if character is really important then, well, why don't we spend any time on it? I mean, it's partly because of that competency equation that we subscribe to, but there's also a deeper reason at play, which is demonstrated really well by the Apostle Paul in our reading today. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I really love these verses. They're just so personal. Now, before this passage, Paul's just spent a really great deal of time explaining things about the law. And what I mean by the law is the principles and standards God gave his people in order for them to be able to be closer to God, back in the Old Testament, and be a blessing to others. Jesus, though, in his teachings, seems to condemn some people who hold on to these laws super tightly, so it's easy to get confused. How does Jesus' teaching about love and grace work in with what God's people were taught hundreds of years before? So, Paul explains that the law is good because it was given to God's people as a gift. These principles and these standards were basically impossible to keep. So they highlight just how much we as human beings fail to measure up to God's perfect standards. So the question people ask Paul is, well, Is it then the law's fault that we don't measure up? But Paul explains in the passage today that it's not the law's fault that we don't measure up. It's something more innate, something we are born with. That is our sinful nature. Look at how many times he repeats it there. I have it in the yellow. Put in other words, we're compromised. There is something about ourselves that means that we're going to struggle to do what is right, good and holy. And I just love how Paul is so honest with this struggle here. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing Now, Martin Luther uses an illustration that I just couldn't resist using. Uh, 
you may have watched a bit of horse riding called dressage last night during the Olympics. Uh, now, if you need me to sit down with you and give you a, a better appreciation of the sport, I'm welcome to do it. But Luther says this, uh, it is as if it's like being a horse with a rider. When the rider's horse does not trot exactly as he wishes it to be, yet uh, it's not the rider that causes the horse to trot. For the horse, it's not... Uh, I'm going to say that again, actually. I started that wrong. It is as with a rider. It's like being a horse with a rider. When the horse does not trot exactly as the rider wishes, it is the rider, and yet not the rider, that causes it to trot in the way that it does. For the horse is not without the rider, nor is he without the horse. Or to put another way, did you experience what I experienced in lockdown? A whole heap of really great intentions to pray more, read the Bible more, do more projects, clean the house, because look how much time I've got, yet kind of fail to do it. Time is clearly not my problem. Or something else. It's why it's so difficult to be who we want to be. It's because of this sinful nature that really just keeps ripping us off and God off of who we are and who we're meant to be. Beings full of love and justice and mercy under this perfect reign of Jesus our King. It's a struggle. But how does this fit with some other teachings of Paul in the same letter? Now, this is a little bit of a Bible nerd moment here, so just bear with me. But doesn't the same Paul talk about us being victorious in Christ, that we are no longer slaves to sin? The same Paul who speaks boldly of Christ in all situations? He seemingly has a rock-solid faith in all of those situations. But this passage doesn't sound very victorious at all. Paul sounds like he really wrestles with sin. He says he's unspiritual and a slave to sin. Plus, he doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit at all. Now, there are lots of opinions here. For example, some people think Paul's talking about his past self uh, when he was persecuting Christians. Others think he's talking about someone who knows the laws, lives a pretty good moral life, but hasn't yet received the Holy Spirit in Jesus. But I don't think Paul's honesty here and his wrestles with sin is actually an issue. It's only an issue if you believe that it's impossible for Paul to experience struggles with sin. He is a human being, made in the image of God and compromised just like the rest of us. So he's not immune to those struggles. I mean, a common response to Jesus by many people when he was on earth, when they came to face to face to his awesomeness, was they'd cry out things like, I am not worthy. And then well, Jesus himself who was fully God and fully human, also experienced struggles 
and temptations. And as we reflected on last week, the difference is he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. I love that these verses are here because it speaks to our real life experience. And in fact, Paul's articulation of this struggle is actually probably a sign of his Christian maturity. As he's journeyed with Christ, he's become more and more aware of his need for Jesus. As his awareness of sin grows, so does his longing and love for Jesus who died for him to ensure that sin will never win. Look at how he cries out. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So please be encouraged when you feel slumped by the weight of sin and unmet expectations. Even our big Bible heroes wrestled with these things. But as they show us and remind us, in the end, as Jesus promised, the victory is ours in Christ. But as we wait for that ultimate day, we also can't just sit and do nothing about it. It is a struggle, but it's not an excuse. And as we were reminded of last week, we're given the Holy Spirit who helps us in her weakness. And there are things we can look out for and strive for as we wait for that glorious day. Firstly, some signs that you're losing the battle. One, watch for a growing gap between your private life and public life. A really small example is how we race to clean the house before someone arrives. But this can escalate to bigger things. When you talk about grace, but snap at your colleagues, kids or spouse. Or say people really matter, but don't make any time to help out. The big irony is, is that when we see it in other people, we hate it and we call them hypocritical. But it's really hard to spot that in ourselves because we tend to judge others uh, on their actions but ourselves by our intentions. Two, you start to hide things. Compromise eventually leads to cover-up because we're ashamed of who we are so we don't want to admit it. Internet browsing history gets deleted, making up little stories to conceal the truth. Cover-up happens. Three, you fail to follow through on what you've said. You might say, let's get together with your parents and siblings, but you don't as often because other priorities get in the way. It's shifted to things like work or money. Or you promise your spouse or partner a date night or a holiday, but it didn't happen because something more urgent popped up. Four, 
you start to justify your bad decisions and actions then. You start to blame things on stuff that you can't control. A typical one is, I don't have time. I'm too busy. And finally, your life becomes all about you. And as Carey puts it, if this is the case, we've done more than just rent our souls. Perhaps we've moved into a long-term lease. And what struck me about this list is that it starts off really, really small. Just little compromises. But by the time we've realised just how much we've done it, we're completely compromised and it's a much harder road back. I mentioned earlier that, well, our focus tends to be about increasing our competencies, KPIs, SMART goals, etc. We constantly get feedback on these things all the time. I mean, sometimes you get feedback when you don't even want it. But no one is really going to give you feedback on your character. Think about the kinds of people we would be if we put as much effort into developing our character as we did our skills. So, a really simple way to take our souls off the market, so to speak, is to put things in place to deepen our character. Such as taking responsibility. It's much easier to blame circumstances on other people rather than deal with ourselves and own up to our own faults. Blame is the opposite of responsibility. So it begins with self-honesty. This is a tough one. (laughs) But the minute we start to admit that we're the problem, we start to make some progress. I mean, you could change lots in your life. We could change jobs, careers, cities, spouses. But none of those things will actually change us. Number two. Make your talk match your walk. Apparently, 60% of people lie during a typical 10-minute conversation. Two or three in that time frame, in fact. I feel like I might want to check those statistics because it isn't, isn't it something like 100% of statistics are fake? <laughs> so we might want to check that. But it's hard to believe, but it's to do with little embellishments or exaggerations. And the scary thing is they're really, really small. So for example, if someone wants to get together with you but you don't feel like it or you know that it's not going to happen, you might actually still say, sure, let's do that. But then nothing ever eventuates. It might suck a little to admit that, I'm sorry, I don't think that will happen. But this response leads us to becoming more humble, ready to admit shortcomings. We might be afraid that people will think less of us because we're showing our shortcomings. But actually, 
they're probably going to think more of you because of your honesty. Lastly, put yourself first when it comes to personal growth. This competency formula that we subscribe to as a society makes it really hard to develop character organically. It's going to be something that we have to be deliberate and intentional about. It's not selfish to take time out of your day to work on your character. I mean, what's better? To end up compromised so that your co-workers and friends gradually distrust you or to end up becoming a person with integrity. The key here, which challenges me, is to take time every day. No one will give you that time, so you have to take it. It means you can't be available all the time for everyone, but it's an investment that will pay so many dividends to you, your family, and your friends. So we can develop some spiritual, emotional, and relational habits for life. Cancel some appointments. Tell the kids just to wait a bit. Pray, run, eat something healthy. Open the Bible. Go horse riding. Walk a dog. Spend time meeting with others to intentionally reflect, work on your issues, and pray together. I have some wonderful friends that I do this often with. But if I'm really honest, if I didn't have my weekly small group Bible study then I probably wouldn't spend as much time doing that as I'd like to. This is something that I have in my diary. Your diary is your best friend here. Schedule things in. If you aren't part of a small group, I'd really encourage you to join one. And if the timing isn't right, or it doesn't look like it can work, move things around, prioritize it. Or maybe ask someone of the staff at St. Columns or wherever you worship, to start one at a different time. There are probably others waiting for that to happen too. Jesus defined maturity by how much we love, not by how much we know. So I now have a very different answer to when people ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because, I mean, let's face it, we never really grow up. It keeps happening. There are beautiful people that I know that have been walking with Jesus for a long time, that have been dedicated to working on their character as they do so. They are so kind, generous, and just ooze love and care. One such person I know gave me a hug last year and just said, I read somewhere that a hug is a physical prayer. And I just melted. That's the kind of person I want to be. And praise be to God that in Jesus Christ, he gives us the power to do so. Amen.